We are very excited to announce we're hosting our first Meetup in the Left Field 2022 on October 21st in Columbus, Ohio. We have Zoomed together for two years, and it is beyond time to meet face-to-face. The primary purpose of this meeting will be to meet your fellow left fielders, as well as to meet and interact with some of our community's favorite sponsors and professionals. The plan is to host a special infielder event Thursday night, October 20th, which will include appetizers, drinks, and the opportunity to connect with your Zoom friends. That will be followed by a full day of networking and meetings on Friday, October 21st. The cost to attend the event is $250. Members of the infield community will get a $100 discount and a free month of membership if they sign up before September 15th. We hope to see you soon in the left field. Hello, left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. We vet the people, but if you only invest in serial entrepreneurs, you wouldn't have done Microsoft, Google, Apple, Amazon, or Facebook. So we start with the people. You start with the people and you're looking for tremendous competence. It's nice when they have a successful entrepreneurial record, but you want to see success in the different roles and ventures they've played. A lot of judgment involved. Reference checking is absolutely critical. You've got to find that type of perseverance. Since you are here listening to this podcast, there's a good chance you're investing with a group of people. Whether you're investing with family or friends or like-minded people in the left field investors community, group investing is a strategy that can get you into more deals, help you diversify, and go beyond what you can achieve by yourself. Before TribeVest came along, it was difficult to overcome all the hurdles associated with group investing. It was basically a strategy reserved for the wealthy. Not anymore. Now, TribeVest helps your group with everything from incorporation, collaboration, banking, and equity management tools all in a single place, so you can focus on building wealth with the people you know, like, and trust. I'm using TribeVest for all five, now six, of my investor tribes. It's a game changer. Check them out at TribeVest.com. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the left field community. Hey, this is Travis Watts. You're listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. I'm really excited today to have Alec Ellison with us. He's the chairman of Our Crowd's US Business. Our Crowd is a platform that presents opportunities to investors to invest in startups, venture funds, and emerging companies. They vet the companies and deals and present them to investors. I think it's a great platform and it's one of those fun things that we do with maybe a small part of our portfolio while the rest might be the boring real estate. This is the fun stuff. So Alec, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Terrific to be here. Thanks for having me today. So the first question I always ask is just to get a little bit of your journey, your background. How did you get to where you are and how did you get into investing in startups and then to become working for a startup? Got it. Well, I appreciate the question. I spent my career as a technology investment banker. I'm going to date myself here. I started at Morgan Stanley in the mid 80s out of college. And then after business school, joined a tech M&A boutique called Broadview, knowing that I wanted to immerse myself in the technology ecosystem. I was there for 15 years, was president when Jefferies bought us uh, in order to really be their technology investment banking business and spent a dozen years at Jefferies, first running the tech banking business, then all of TMT, Tech Media Telecom, then co-heading all of banking for a while, and then hung my hat the last several years there as a vice chairman of the firm and executive committee member before retiring from investment banking in 2016 after almost 30 years total in the tech banking business. So I had been involved in the venture capital ecosystem as an advisor and banker since the mid 80s. 
And it's really then when I got involved with our crowd. Our crowd, as some of your listeners may know, is actually based in Israel. And I had known the founder from the mid-90s as we were at Broadview, very active in the early days of the Israeli ecosystem, which is now a massive ecosystem and I think home to 10% of the world's unicorns, which is pretty remarkable for a country of under 10 million people. And I started investing on the platform. I was asked to get more involved. I joined the board for several years. And then a little over three years later, so we're talking spring of 19, took on this executive role where I chair the U.S. business and I actually serve as the firm's executive committee chair as well. And so it's really a continuation of the journey I've been on for nearly, uh, gosh, I hate to say it, nearly 40 years. And what I will also add is that I've never been more excited about the technology and growth ecosystem globally. When I started, it was the there was a PC boom in the mid '80s. A few of your listeners may know. Some of most of you probably weren't born yet, but Apple went public in '81, Microsoft in '86, and there have been boom and busts since then. Uh, of course, there was the internet and so-called dot-com crash, and we had the financial crisis, and then more recently, we've had a real boom in the market and decline in valuations. But every one of these explosive booms is based on literally economy-changing technology, and the Roaring Twenties of in the 1920s, which may be a term you're familiar with, may become eclipsed by the roaring 20s we believe we're entering now. And just as those 20s a century ago were driven by electrification of mechanical industries, artificial intelligence is now transforming every industry and every component of digital technology. And why artificial intelligence and why Israel? I, it's one of my mm-hmm. questions. There's so so many startups in Israel and the artificial intelligence, is that embedded in a lot of these startups or is that a separate startup would be artificial intelligence for other companies? Well, Jim, there's really two different questions. There, so let me address them one by one. First, Israel. Israel was labeled the startup nation. It's actually the title of a book about 12 years ago, where some authors looked at the ecosystem and said, why is this country of seven or eight million people, now it's close to 10, with very little natural resources, literally the size of New Jersey, creating so many startups, particularly in areas like cybersecurity, communications, medical devices. And the analysis was really threefold. One, that pretty much every Israeli 18-year-old enters the armed services because they live in a pretty bad neighborhood. Hopefully we'll get better, but it's a pretty bad neighborhood. And get great training. In fact, there are units that have spawned repeated entrepreneurs. So that number one is the technical training. Number two is just a lack of natural resources. As Golda Meir used to say, late famous prime minister of Israel, that Moses took the Jews out of Egypt to the only place in the Middle East with no oil. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you have a lack of natural resources. There actually is some offshore natural gas now, by the way, but that was back in her day, that was the observation. It was the one place in the Middle East with no oil. So you had a lack of natural resources and you had this great training, you had a very educated population. But you could say Switzerland has those things, similar population. Everybody goes in the armed services, no real natural resources except for uh, skiing. (laughs) What Israel has as well is a culture of risk-taking. And that actually comes back a bit to the bad neighborhood. When you live in a world, in a country where you are constantly threatened existentially by your neighbors, the idea of starting a company doesn't seem risky at all. And that really does pervade the ecosystem. And once an ecosystem gets going, as we saw with Silicon Valley, as we saw back in Massachusetts, going back to the really 50s and 60s, it feeds on itself. It attracts risk takers themselves. It attracts capital. It attracts all the services around it. And that's why you have that ecosystem developing there. Now, I should add that while in the early days of our crowd, which is almost a decade ago now, all the deals were coming out of Israel, all the new companies now, about only about half are coming out of Israel, probably a third plus from the US and then 10, 15% from the rest of the world. And I do mean rest of the world, India, Southeast Asia, Canada. We're looking a lot in the Gulf now where we are licensed to invest in companies since the Abraham Accords. So that's really the Israel part. Now, your point about artificial intelligence or your question about it, the term artificial intelligence goes back to the 50s. Okay, It's not a new term. The methodologies go back almost as far. It's the idea that could computers actually think more and more like humans. When I was a young banker in the 80s, we would call on artificial intelligence companies. I'll tell you, every single one of them disappeared. And the reason was that the methodologies involved in artificial intelligence require lots of computing power. And so these terms you hear like graphic processors and big data, cloud computing, the ability for anybody in a lab anywhere to access world-class power of computing, these are what have enabled these methodologies that have existed for 50 plus years to actually finally be applied. 
And that's what's happening now started really happening. You hear, I got another term, 5G, 5G communications is the power to actually wirelessly convey the big data that is being collected with Internet of Things is another buzzword for you. All these billions of devices around the world that's being, that are collecting this, communicating it wirelessly to a processor, which are continuing with Moore's Law, continue to get more and more powerful and processing speed and storage that can be accessed with a link to Amazon Web Services or Google Cloud just about anywhere in the world if you've got a connection. So it's this infrastructure, big, again, big data, Internet of Things, all these things that didn't exist when artificial intelligence methodologies were first developed that is now allowing the promise to be a reality. And just as Mark Andreessen famously said in 2011, software eats the world, that anytime you can digitize a process in any industry, even old boring industries like utilities, you can apply software and you change it and that eats that industry. It's really hard to name an industry that's not been transformed by technology. And now that same digital technology that's transformed every industry is being turbocharged with artificial intelligence. So when we talk about some of our companies being artificial intelligence companies like Halo, it's an artificial intelligence chip company. But really, just about any tech company worth their salt is applying the components of artificial intelligence if they're going to be competitive. Okay, and I think the first thing I need to do is step back for a minute. Okay. Because we're getting into it, and this is what I want. Yeah. But venture capital is what we're talking about. Right. Startups, angels, unicorns. Are those all the same thing? What are the terms that we're looking for for our crowd is investing in? Are these pre-IPOs, are they all the same thing? No, no, they're not. I'm glad you asked the question. So I'll try to differentiate and maybe I'll tone down the buzzwords a little bit. I know you're in the real estate. A lot of your investors are real estate investors. The way to think about venture capital, it's a sub-segment of the private equity world. The private equity world includes basically anything that's not public. And that is a world that is growing by leaps and bounds, in part because the public markets are shrinking. There are barely half as many U.S. public companies now today than there were in 2000. It's been a steady decline. We thought there was going to be some expansion last year, or a dramatic expansion with the so-called SPAC phenomenon, not really playing out. That market is kind of bust. So the private market is becoming more and more important compared to the public market. And unfortunately, the private market isn't accessible to everybody. And we think that is, dare I say, a tragedy, but certainly a lost opportunity for most investors who are sitting around waiting for a great company, the next Google to go public. But the reality is over 90% of companies that get actual venture capital, which I'll define a little better in a moment, actually get venture capital money never go public. They sell before they go public. So the, the public misses these opportunities. Very different than when I started my career. When Apple and Microsoft went public, they were much earlier in their development. If you bought those things, you're literally a thousand times your money. Now the best, best deals you're going to be, Google went public in 04. It's probably 40 times your money now, which is unbelievable, of course. But that's the big outlier. Most companies never go public and the companies that do go public wait until they're much longer. So turning to the private world, venture capital is the term applied to the earlier stage of the private world of everything from startups. I assume that's a term your audience will have heard of. Seed investing, which is really even a subset of that. The growth stage, you think of it as seed, startup, growth, and then the maturation. Very different than the LBO world, LBO meaning leverage buyout, which implies that there's leverage. There's a lot of borrowing and debt where you take mature companies and you lever them up just like you do with real estate. You take a dependable set of cash flows, you lever them up and you get a better equity return. Very, very little leverage in the venture and growth world. There's some, but very little because there's enough risk without taking on incremental financial risk. You've got technology risk. You've got product market fit risk. So usually debt only comes in later stages and with very small debt to total cap or debt to total value types of ratios compared to what you see in the real estate world. And then the term venture capital also is used when there's institutional money or high net worth money going into the companies. A little bit different than angel investing. Angel investing implies that, which often comes at an earlier stage, that individuals are serving as angels. We ourselves really fit into that, both of those worlds, because the angel investing term also implies that the individuals are not just investing passively in the company, but they're looking to get involved. They're looking to get involved to add value to open doors for the companies in which they've invested, which hopefully 
boosts their financial return and to some extent, you know, provides psychic value to individuals about getting involved with really exciting companies. And look, a lot of these companies are in the so-called impact worlds now of energy technology and food tech trying to solve major global sustainability issues. In fact, probably 30% of the deals we invest in are in those areas. And I think broadly in the venture capital world, 20% plus of companies are seeking to address these types of sustainability or impact challenges. Okay, how does Series A fit into that, or any of, and then I guess there's Series B and all that after that. It's all yeah. very confusing to me, yeah. to me at least. <laughs> well, hopefully the alphabet's not confusing. Okay, so <laughs> it's really a nomenclature that many companies go through. Their first investing is often called seed, which might come from angels, it might come from a fund. These are generally hundreds of thousands of dollars of equity investment. The Series A is the next stage. Is there a certain amount that is involved with Series A? It's typically in the seven figures, but it can vary. And then B is the next round after that, and C, D, E, F, et cetera. So it's really a nomenclature in order to capture the which round of financing the company is going through. There are some guidelines that typically a Series A financing doesn't occur until a company has shown that it can generate revenue, not necessarily profits, not at all, but just some revenue. Series B and C is typically a growth stage where a company has shown that there's product market fit, that the dogs are eating the dog food, as we say. It's not just a few trial customers. There's a real business model. And you're trying to fund the growth that is necessary. Companies still typically are losing money, sometimes a substantial amount of money. But you can look at the long-term value of the customers. The LTV is often called the long-term value of the customers being brought in and say, okay, this is worth financing because if I want to be profitable, I could slow the growth. But why do that when you know that you've got product market fit and you're continuing to finance that growth? So those are your kind of your growth stages. Ages, BC could be D. Money companies never get to a so-called E round. That can be because of good things are happening, or it could be like they're doing a restructuring and things haven't gone well and they're having to recapitalize the company. Kind of like a piece of real estate where half the tenants disappear and you've got to totally restructure the cap structure. So sometimes the later rounds look like that. But so many companies get acquired by the major tech companies, whether it's semiconductors, software, you name it, before they get to those later rounds. And then a very few percent do actually go public. Again, it's single digits. And I remember early in my career, as I said, the companies went public, venture-backed companies went public much more than they would sell. It kind of flipped in the mid-90s to 50-50. And now again, it's for, we can go into it, but there's regulatory and other reasons. It's just tough to be a public company and most companies and their investors would prefer to sell to realize an exit on their investment. The dilution of your investment. So if you're an early investor and all these rounds come in after you, is it typical that your ownership percentage gets diluted? So do you want to invest early to get better returns or is it later you get less diluted? Well, the dilution is, there's two types of dilution. There's dilution of ownership, whereas you don't participate in the next round, your percentage goes down. But if the share price is going up, think about being in a public company. So suppose I bought stock at $10 a share and they decide to do a big equity offering at 20. That doesn't upset me. I still own my stock. It's $10 per share. My ownership is diluted, the percent I own. However, in venture deals, and we we pride ourselves in the fact that we're offering individual investors institutional type terms as opposed to being, and I I don't want to get into all the complexities around common stock, preferred stock, different types of preferred stocks, but the latter with all those protections are what we mean when we say institutional terms. We invest institutionally alongside very well-known venture firms, often alongside strategics, meaning corporations, and we're providing those types of terms, those type of protections. There's an old saying, you name the price, I'll name the terms. Okay. Like it's more important to have the ability to name the terms of a deal because that's where the protections come in in case things don't go well, for example. So the idea of being able to invest as an individual in institutional terms is very much a key to the value proposition that we offer. And I should also add, because you didn't mention it in your intro, we're not only looking at hundreds of you know, 50 years plus deals before we do what a single deal, we're investing our own ourselves at the general partner level in every deal. So it's not just vetted, curated deals. We're actually putting our own money where our mouth is, so to speak. And then many of our individuals like myself invest on our own account on our platform in individual deals or in funds. Uh, we kind of, uh, you know, eat what's, uh, we know what's going on in the kitchen. We decide to eat it anyway, while we're also serving it out to the patrons in the main dining room. That's awesome. That, that gives confidence. And that's something that we look in when we're doing just normal real estate stuff. If the GPs are in on the deal, that makes us feel a lot more comfortable. And when we are, again, we're mostly real estate. So when we're looking at a real estate deal, the first thing we do is vet the operator, 
then we look at the market, then we look at the deal. That's kind of how we do it. So how do you vet the company on your platform? What due diligence do you do? Because you're investing your own money and, and the company's money in that and vetting deals for us, which is huge. But what kind of procedures do you have there and how does that work? Well, what you just said was uh, interesting because it echoed my real estate professor in business school. We always talked about people, property, deal. That was the whole framework for the class. That's exactly what you just said. A little different than location, location, location. I guess that's part of the, the, the middle right. one, the property side of things. But the reality is a property, a piece of real property is much less complicated than a company. First of all, there's something you can look and feel and touch. Okay, you can't look and feel and touch code, computer code, and that's on pretty much anything, even if it's a piece of hardware like a semiconductor. The value is the code, it's the algorithm, it's the process, and you have to ask yourself, well, are they doing this better than somebody else? Is this accounting software better than somebody else's accounting software? Is Google or Microsoft going to leapfrog them? Hopefully they'll actually buy them. But you've got these major, the five biggest market cap companies in the US, maybe on the planet, are all tech companies. Right, it's Apple, it's Amazon, it's Microsoft, it's Meta, formerly known as Facebook, and Google. I think I named them all. And by the way, they're all started in the last 50 years. Rather remarkable. Uh, and they were all first-time yeah. entrepreneurs, I will also point out. All five of them, rather remarkable. Which gets to one of the things we vet. We vet the people. But if you only invest in serial entrepreneurs, you wouldn't have done Microsoft, Google, Apple, Amazon, or Facebook. So you've got to vet. So we start with the people. That's where I was kind of heading on that. You start with the people and you're looking for tremendous competence. It's nice when they have a successful entrepreneurial record, but you want to see success in the different roles and ventures they've played. And there's a lot of judgment involved. Reference checking is absolutely critical. You've got to find that type of perseverance. Again, very different than a piece of property where, yes, you're going to, you want to make sure that you're dealing with high integrity individuals who are involved. But if you've got a great piece of beachfront property with all the tenants locked in and the promoter is not adding that much value, it might not matter. If you've got a lousy executive starting the company, they've got to stay away. And so we will walk away from so many things because you're just not comfortable. You're not saying they're bad, low integrity people. You're just not saying that they are standouts, that these are winners. So that's number one. Number two, you talk about property. So the property analog is what is the problem that they are trying to address in the proposed solution? And it's best if that problem is understood by the market and there aren't real solutions. If there are other solutions out there, you've got to make the case for why you have a better solution, why you have a better mousetrap. Because one big difference between technology and growth companies versus real estate is you don't have the competitive advantage of location. That gas station at a great corner is still going to do a lot of business, right? Location has almost no relevance in the globe. You can have the best startup in the world. In, it can be in Eastern Europe. It can be in Australia. It can be in the U.S., Canada, Israel. By the way, this is one of the reasons that Israel was able, with an undesirable location, compete effectively. If you've got the best algorithm, you've got the best problem to a solution, and you can get that message out, then you're gonna have a great company. So that's, again, number two, people, property, and then you talk about deal, deal is critical. For us, that's price and terms, and as I said earlier, the terms component, the protections, understanding what happens if things go wrong are absolutely critical. Now, in addition to those three analogs to people, property, deal, I would add the following. Who else is in the deal? Who are the co-investors in the deal? That can be a form of validation. And do you have any strategic investors, meaning corporate investors who actually might be clients who therefore serve as a source of revenue and they have a stake in the company's success? That again, a little bit different than the real estate world. And then, so that's again, co-investors, both other firms and credibility and corporates. And then the key thing to look at is the competition because every piece of real estate has a different location. So there is competition, of course, but it's not global competition. It's by definition, a location-based community, city, regional competition at most. And so there's a tremendous amount of time focused on understanding the competition. And this is the hardest area of diligence because there's often in the early stages, competitors you've never heard of. They're in stealth mode. You don't know that somebody else is addressing the same issue, right? We look with the rear view mirror with hindsight at the great successes, like a Facebook. They weren't the first people doing what they were doing. I mean, you ever, do you remember a company called GeoCities? Does that name kind of ring a bell? Yeah. yeah. I mean, they were kind of doing the same thing. They didn't do it well. Okay. <laughs> and then there's all kinds of companies you never heard of that disappeared. I could go with so many stories of companies. And because you're dealing with algorithms, you're dealing with the best mousetrap wins. 
can win globally even, which makes for huge economic rents, huge potential profits. It also means that you can have easy zero if you're not one or two in the market. It's like what Jack Welch used to say at GE, you know, he wants to be one or two in every market he's in or he's not in there. That is so true in so many of the technology areas because the also rands just don't have a role. They just disappear. You ever heard of a company called Digital Research? I ring a bell at all? Vaguely. Oh, that does. Okay. For many people, I'm impressed, Jim. For many people, never heard of it. They were number two to Microsoft in the 80s with DOS. Ended up getting sold for very little. And the founder, I think, died in a barroom brawl. So they were this close to being Microsoft. And then, so that, think of it on a curve as you've got people way up here and people down here and then people who just disappear. So that competitive dynamic in the analysis is a fifth area that is somewhat different than the real estate analysis. So it's then we look at all of that. We bring things forward to our investment committee. Frankly, nine out of 10 things that come over the transformer that we look at, we quickly dismiss. Often they're simply too early. They're an idea. They're a thought. They're a concept. They haven't thought about how they're going to go to market if they even are successful developing what they are. So it's that kind of one in 10 that get to into our diligence process. And then about one in five of those will get into our really investment committee funnel and get funded. And as I said, our model is we're investing at the general partner level on each deal. And then and only then do we put it on our global platform and allow people around the world to invest. And I mean it when I say around the world. Last year, we had in 2021, we had investors from 64 different countries write checks to invest in companies or funds on our platform. So that's how you vet it. That's how you figure out if you want to invest in it. As an investor, how do I figure out? I mean, I go to your website, there's 50 companies on there. They're all vetted by you, so you guys are already investing in them. So how does an investor like me figure out, yeah, I'm going to do this one and not this one? Great question. Let me first say, by the way, we never have 50 companies. We tend to try to limit it to 20 or 25. It's still a lot, but (laughs) it's fewer. We also have funds. So we entered the fund business about five years ago because we had this question with people saying, look, I can't figure this out. We've got people who love to figure it out. They're semi-retired, retired. They want to get involved with the companies. They enjoy it. They want to go long on areas they know. No, I'm a former software engineer. I want to invest in software. I'm a doctor. I want to invest in med tech. But plenty of people say, look, I can't figure it out. So we created funds. So our flagship fund is called OC50, which is, stands for our crowd 50. And it's the next 50 deals we do, irrespective of geography, irrespective of segment, and irrespective of stage. It might be the C round of a company we invested in two years ago. And now we're up to the C round. That goes 2% of the fund into that. Or it might be our first round in a fund. So it gives this segment and this stage diversification that is rather unique. So that's the easiest way to just get exposure to the category, be diversified automatically. Now, if you are going to invest deal by deal, which by the way, that's what I do. I'm invested in 40 plus different companies. If you're going to invest individually, you want to invest in numerous companies because you want that same diversification, but you have to create it yourself rather than with one purchase of an interest in a fund. So those are the ways to think about it. We try to make our site very searchable for people who want to look into it by segment, by theme, such as I mentioned sustainability. You could say, I want to look at everything that's ESG related. So you'll see the ESG deals. I want to look at things that are AI, artificial intelligence related. You'll get that. So we have all kinds of tools on that front. We have lots of tools that teach you about venture capital, tutorials and the like. But if you simply want the simplest way, and again, that's how probably a third of our investors just buy a fund product and the most popular being OC50. The other types of fund products we have are thematic. For example, we have a cybersecurity fund on the platform now. Got a lot of interest because people understand these threats around the world are only getting worse. We have a food tech company we just launched. Uh, given the recognition of protein substitution because of sustainability being a big driver. I mean, who on this, who listening to this podcast hasn't tried some type of alternative product in the dairy world, whether it's almond milk, coconut milk, oat milk. We have a company called Ripple, which is vegetable-based. So it actually has as much protein as milk as opposed to the nut-based milks. But we're all living that. And in fact, a lot of our deals that resonate the most are these things that have the sense of, I can actually try it. Like it's really hard for me to understand an artificial intelligence chip, but I can understand a dairy alternative. Yeah, and I'm in Ripple. I like okay. the Me dairy too. alternatives Me and meat yep. alternatives. Those are the ones I'm always looking for because, like you said, I can understand it, and it seems like something that's coming. Yeah, we, we, we were in uh, we were in Beyond Meat before it went public. It's one of the few companies that went public. And we, when we talk about that, when it was like, okay, guys, you can call it what you want, veggie burger. You can say it's different alternative. You got to taste it first. 
Okay. And that to me, when we had our global investor summit in Israel, shortly before it went public, we had, we called it Beyond Meat Gridlock because we had free burgers at a kiosk and we gave out several thousand. So it, it showed that people liked it. <laughs> so yeah. T- it's real simple, but taste matters on food tech. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> The first annual Spartan Investor Summit is an exclusive two-day experience on California's iconic Lake Tahoe. 50 serious investors and eight amazing speakers are gathering at the Landing Resort and Spa for this intimate event focused on knowledge sharing, meaningful connections, and recession-resistant investment strategies that will help you live your best life. Featured speakers include Clint Coons, Rich Fetke, Ram LaPointe, Vicki Schiff, and Toby Mathis, along with Spartan's own Scott Lewis, Ryan Gibson, and Ben Lapidus. If you're ready to learn more about recession-resistant investment strategies while meeting like-minded leaders from around the country, click the link on our podcast page to learn more about the sessions, speakers, and adventures that await at the Spartan Investor Summit. Space is limited, so don't wait. What is the typical investor allocation to this type of investment? I know, like I said, real estate, we like the boring stuff. We don't want anything exciting. This, part of the reason I'm in it, because it's super fun, mm-hmm. right? But do you know what the typical allocation is? Is it 1%, 5%, 10% of your portfolio goes into this kind of stuff? It's usually mid-single digits. And because it's risky, there's no question about it. Some people, in a way, the more money you have, the higher a percentage you can allocate and feel comfortable. In fact, what's happening in the consumer high net worth, ultra high net worth world of this so-called democratization of venture investing trend that I alluded to up front, which was enabled by regulatory changes a, a decade ago, which is when our crowd came into being, is really mirroring what happened in the institutional world. So if you go back 40 plus years, the great endowments of this country, Yale, Harvard, MIT, Stanford, which are still the big endowments, Prince, those are are the five big endowments. There was this classic 60-40 mix between equity and fixed income. There was no real estate generally in these portfolios, except the universities owned real estate. Of course, some of it was valuable, some wasn't. And there was this guy named David Swenson who passed away about a year ago. If anybody follows the financial press, his passing was a major news item. He was the chief investment officer at Yale University. And he had a very simple insight in the mid 80s, which is that I, meaning the endowment, have permanent capital that's been here 100 years ago, it should be here in 100 years. So therefore, I can think long term, I can think illiquid, I don't have to worry about just invest and I can start looking elsewhere. So he started investing in LBO and private equity, and he started investing in venture capital, he being the office. The returns at Yale, look it up anywhere, have outpaced every one of its rivals on almost any 20-year period for the last 40 years. It fundamentally changed institutional investing, changed it changed the university system in this country. David Swenson probably had, has had more impact on higher education than any individual in the last 50 years because of the resources that were able to be developed as endowments started investing in this fashion and getting superior returns far above the classic 60-40 equity fixed income split. And again, and you won't find an endowment worth their salt that isn't doing this now. In fact, at the top endowments, the percent, this is where I want to come to, the percent in venture capital is 20, 25% in venture capital alone. And public equity is like single digit. Now, you and I can't think in terms of 100 years. I'd like to think that one day I'll have the wealth where I can think in terms of three or four generations down, but that's generally not the case. There's a part of the population, small part that can do that way. So the way to think about your allocation is a function of how long-term you can think and how illiquid you can think. What can you spare to be capital gain, long-term oriented? It's not 20-something percent like a university. It's generally for most people, it's single-digit percent. And then another key way to think about is in which part of my investing portfolio do I have this? And perhaps counterintuitively, if you're able to, a very logical place is in a retirement fund because that's where you should be thinking long-term. The average retirement fund holding is 27 years. And so it's a very logical place for your most long-term oriented investing. People think of it as their nest egg and they shouldn't be risky with it. It's almost the opposite. They should be thinking this is where more of their risky long-term capital gains oriented investing should be. And we may have made it not just in the US, but in other countries where people can invest in our crowd through retirement accounts. And so they can have that long-term type of orientation. Well, that makes me feel good because I have a, the bulk of my uh, speculation stuff is in my self-directed IRA. So yeah, good. exactly. That's exactly the way to think of it. 
So you talked a little bit about the exit is either maybe they go public, maybe they get bought out. How many, I guess more get bought out, but what's the typical exit and how long is the typical investment? Okay. Well, the vast majority get bought out. As I said, that was in the mid nineties, it was maybe 50, 50 of venture back companies get go public. The other half get bought. The public market, small cap public market system has been ripped apart by regulation and other changes, whether it's decimalization, which took away the trading margin, Sarbanes-Oxley, which added all this regulation. I've met CEOs of great companies as a banker, as an investor who just have no interest in being public. So it's the vast majority gets sold. Now, when does that exit happen, whether it's M&A or sold? It's typically a six to nine year period from the first investment. So that's why we have some people who say, look, that's too long for me to wait. I want to invest later stage. So I'm going to invest in those individual companies on the platform that are in their CDE round. Or we have one product called, it's a follow-on product, which only invests in companies that we've already invested in and we're now investing a second time. So my definition is a positive self-selection and it's later stage. You know, but typically there is greater return with greater risk. And so investing early can in fact be uh, where you get the greatest return. So again, one of the reasons OC50 is popular is because it provides that stage diversification, not just the segment diversification. So you're getting some mid and late stage, not just early stage. But the short answer to your question is from initial funding until liquidity is typically something like six to nine years. And then typical returns, is it all or nothing? Meaning half of them go to zero and half of them go to the moon? Or I imagine somewhere in the middle. Yes, there are. <laughs> yeah, look, a, some number, a third, maybe give or take, will go to zero. And then you've got those in the middle and then those are the five, 10 or even bigger multiples on invested capital. One of the reasons that a lot of people like to invest in funds or on our platform, you can kind of form your own diversified fund. In fact, we tell people we can't stop you from investing in one company, but that's not the way to think about it. You need to be diversified because that one investment might be a zero. It could also be a 10, 10 bagger. But the range of returns is much more disparate than in areas like real estate. And that's why it's so, so critical to be diversified. And it's those of you who are familiar and those listeners familiar with the public markets know that there's a varied returns, but the returns are even more varied in the private and the venture markets. How does the current economic condition, meaning all of the uncertainty, interest rates, inflation, war in Europe, all of this stuff that's going on, How does that affect startups and companies you might be investing in? Great question. So again, I've been through numerous cycles since the mid 80s. And the first thing is always look at the backdrop of what's happening technologically, which I described earlier, which is the continued component of software eating the world, now turbocharged with artificial intelligence methodologies. That said, valuations clearly got ahead of themselves in late 2021 with multiples at historic highs. Those multiples have now moved back. They moved back in the public market. They worked their way back, not overnight, but they worked their way back into the private markets as well. So now is a better time, by definition, now is a better valuation environment than six to eight months ago. We're sitting here in uh, August of 2022. Multiples in many segments are half or even less of what they were at the peak of the market, November, December, January, 2021, 2022. Now, those of us like yourself, perhaps, or listeners who invested back then say, oh, I mean, I've lost half my money. No, frankly, you may have lost half your money. And so that's why it's so critical to be in investing in a company that's growing very fast. So we have a lot of companies now that are pricing rounds at the same price as their last round, even though they're two or three times the size they were then. And here's where an analog to the public market really comes in. Just like a lot of investors in the public market do dollar cost averaging. They find good companies and they keep investing in them, not trying to time them, not thinking about price. Similarly, if you're invested in the A or B round of a company and that round in hindsight was overpriced, by all means, take advantage of the next round where the multiple of revenue, for example, is much lower and you're effectively dollar cost averaging down your investment. Sometimes people aren't disciplined to do that. They're like, oh, I'm all upset that I invested in something and it's doubled, but the price is still the same or worse. And yet an investor's clinical discipline would lead you to what I just said, which is, no, you should say, okay, I like this company. It's performing well. It's growing well. I'm now getting my shares at a lower multiple, so I should actually put more capital into it. And that's why these institutional terms I talked about are so important because one of the key institutional terms is the right to invest in the next round. 
The worst thing is those of you who are listening to be angel investing with your cousin's company, buying common equity, or maybe there's some institutional money in that. Things don't go so well in that startup or that growth stage company, and you get jammed down and pushed down the cap structure with the new money, and you didn't have the right to participate. So those rights are very, very critical. How does an investor like us, like me, get to know those terms. I mean, you guys... We publish them on the site. It's the deal terms are all there. The most important one is preferred. Okay, I'm going to give you a little tutorial, not to be too technical. The most important is preferred. It means your preferred stock is ahead of the common stock. And what that means simply is that let's say a company has a valuation of $50 million and the venture capitalists come in and they invest $10 million in their preferred stock. If things don't go well and the company sells for 15 million, that 10 million of preferred gets their 10 million out first. And the rest of that 5 million of sale price goes to every other investor. And that's why it's so, so important. It's better than in some ways in the public market where you have common stock, where you don't have that. But that preference is really, really important. Why you want to be in the, it's called the top stack of the capital structure. It's similar in real estate, right? You may have bank debt that's senior to the sub debt. And then below that, you've got the equity holders and the value of the building, excuse me, went from 100 million to 50 billion. And the bank's going to take everything, right? If you've got uh, 50 million or more of debt and the equity guys are washed out, or maybe you throw them a tip so they don't sue you, right? That's what happens in a restructuring of a company or a building. It's just some payoff money, but the bank gets it. So the preferred is kind of like the bank and that's where you want to be. But in venture, preferred is almost always convertible into common if things go well. So that's the key. You're getting the equity upside of the potential return. So you said, so why do companies give preferred stock convertible? It's really convertible preferred to venture investors like ourselves and others with whom we invest. The reason is that's what you have to do to attract and have people take this risk to put their capital at risk. So it's often a misconception that venture capitalists are going in there side by side with the entrepreneur. They're generally not. Now, they are generally senior to the entrepreneur in liquidation, and yet they're side by side if things go well. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good to me. (laughs) Well, look, this is risky stuff. So these terms evolved over time. When I first got into this market in the 80s, I was like, wait a minute, this doesn't seem right. It makes sense because the entrepreneur has a sweat equity, okay? And that has real value. But someone who's putting out real capital should be more senior in the cap structure. Can you talk about some of the biggest successes? You talk about Beyond Meat. So Mm -hmm. other big successes on the platform. And then on the other side, if I invest in 100 companies on the platform, how many of those are going to zero? Well, I think you asked the latter earlier, and I can't be predictive, but I've seen in venture in general, you know, a third of the companies, give or take, will often go to zero. Again, I, our ratio is better than that, but I'm kind of giving you a number. I've had some of the most, some of the partners in the most, in the best venture funds around have actually a higher percentage because they take more risk because they don't care about the companies going to zero. They care about the 10, 20, 30 Xs. In fact, think about that. You can only lose one times your money in venture right? You can make 5, 10, 15, 20 times. So a lot of venture capitalist philosophy is to take great risk. And I have individual investors I talk to on our platform. And one comes to mind immediately. I won't name them, of course. But he says, I don't even want to see something that's not looking for 10x. Okay, I just I use your platform for my high risk swing for the fences money. That's his perspective. We have other investors with different. And that's a key theme of our platform. We want to empower investors to invest how they want, whether it's by segment, by geography, by stage, with different risk profiles. We have investors who think that way. We have some investors who say, I just want to do impact investing. We have some that say, I just want to do late stage. So that's why that percentage prediction component, your second question is, I throw out a number, but it's very much a range. The first part of the question was about- Just a uh, big yeah. successes. Big successes, yeah. I point to a companies you might not have heard of, Wave, a Canadian accounting software company. Interestingly, was brought to us by one of our investors. We look at our global crowd as not just a source of capital, but as a source of companies. And we'll, people will bring companies to us. And sometimes we will give them a piece of the economics if we really, really like something they've brought. That was a company, H&R Block, for half a billion dollars. Lemonade, which is disrupting the insurance business, was a great success. The public stock, it did go public. The public, we got out at the pretty high price. The stock has had its challenges since then, but it was a great return for us. So those are some of them. Another company in the scooter business, we sold to Uber, got Uber stock before it went public, was a great success for us. And we have a number of companies in the portfolio that are now valued at 10x or more from what we initially invested in them. That's really, that's interesting to see who you're 
the companies are and where they go. That, that's awesome. Can you talk a little bit about minimum investments? I know some platforms have investments you can get in for hundreds of dollars. Right. I know others are thousands of dollars. Can you talk about your minimums and how that works? Sure. Well, first of all, our platform is only for accredited investors. And I suspect some of your listeners are not accredited investors. The guidelines of what accredited investor hasn't changed in 40 years. It's actually loosened up a little bit. It relates to having either a million dollars of investable assets total outside your home or $200,000 of income. If you're a financial services professional, those rules don't apply. You're considered okay to be an accredited investor. So that sets us apart. There's reasons we did that. I don't think we have time to get into it now from a regulatory standpoint. The minimum investment in an individual company is $10,000 unless you are making a commitment to invest in multiple companies and then that minimum is $5,000. The minimum investment in one of our funds, such as OC50, where it's the kind of one size, you just one investment gets you diversified instantly, that minimum is $50,000. So it's significantly higher than some of the other platforms out there. It's one of the reasons we believe the biggest platform in the world with close to $2 billion invested. One of the reasons we did that is, I mentioned the regulatory reasons, but also our investors are often a source of value to our companies. And so we like having investors who are a little higher up the socioeconomic pyramid because they actually tend to have the networks that can help our companies the most too, which again, is not meant to be disparaging. We'd love to see the accredited investor rules liberalized. The last SEC chairman during the Trump administration actually was pushing for more liberalization, such as the expansion to financial service professionals. There's a lot of talk then that's since been silenced on letting engineers invest in tech companies. You know, don't tell them just because you're a young engineer or maybe an immigrant engineer that you don't know enough to invest as compared to somebody who just happened to inherit a few million dollars. Why should she or he be invested? So those of you who are aware of this issue, please lobby your respective congressmen and women (laughs) that accredited investor limitations should be liberalized. I completely agree with that. I cannot stand the accredited investor status because it's just based on your wallet, and not on your knowledge. It makes me crazy, but that's a whole nother conversation. Yep, it is. It's, very, <laughs> I, it's a very political conversation. <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah. So the last question I always ask is, what is a great podcast that you listen to? Oh, I, I'm going to sound kind of trite, but I, I love a lot of the Tim Ferriss podcasts. And I guess he enjoys the benefit of having a broad listener base who is able to bring on more and more interesting, varied, accomplished individuals who can provide perspectives on so many different areas. But uh, I'm not a huge podcast listener, but that's the one I've listened to the most. Yeah, that, that's a good one. And then if listeners want to get in touch with you yeah. or get to know more about Our Crowd, what's the best way to do that? I would suggest two things. First, just go to our crowd, www.ourcrowd.com. You can register on the platform in about 60 seconds, ask you a few questions about yourself and you'll start seeing deal flow. But you know, I'll invite you to send me an email if you'd like and I'll direct you to someone who can assist. It's alec, A-L-E-C, at ourcrowd.com. But back on the former, our whole platform is designed to be very low friction, easy to use, enable people to invest. We have people who invest, never talk to an individual, never have any contact with one of our individuals on staff in our investor relations centers. One of my brothers did that, in fact. Now it's like, if you start the, you say, you see something you like and you want to start the process, there's four documents you need. It's your bank account, license or a passport, et cetera. And literally we've got the process down where the friction is so low, it's under 10 minutes, sometimes under five minutes to make that first investment. And that's, again, that's what we're about. We're about empowerment. We're not like about sending crazy documents around, but we do follow the regulations to the T. We are very proud of our ability to bring in investors around the world because we've taken the effort and uh, cost and resources to be approved to handle investment from investors in so many different countries. Yeah, and I, I can agree with that. I'm on the platform. I'm invested in several companies and it is very easy. It is easier than a real estate syndication. That's for yeah. sure. I'd also say we have a great mobile app. So go to the app store and download uh, our crowd and you can you know, walk around on your phone. Once you've made some investments, you get updates on the companies. You'll get the quarterly update on how the company's doing, but companies are putting out press releases of new things they're doing and you're seeing new deals in real time on the app. I spend much more time on the app personally than I do on my laptop. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being a guest. This was, again, not our normal topic, but it is fascinating to me. I'm really interested in it. So I appreciate your time. This was a great episode for our community. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me and I look forward to seeing y'all on the site. We would like to introduce one of our trusted partners, Ashcroft Capital, to the left field investors community. At Ashcroft, they focus on capital preservation while still having upside potential, through their value-add funds. They are proud to announce their second fund, 
The Ashcroft Value Add Fund 2 is now open to investors. The Ashcroft Value Add Fund 2 has been created with one singular purpose in mind, to reduce risk to investors. The Ashcroft Value Add Fund 2 will continue to use the same conservative business plan Ashcroft was founded with, acquiring quality multifamily assets and offering value-add opportunity in strong performing markets throughout the country. To learn more about Ashcroft Capital's investment criteria or about the markets and properties they are targeting, please download their latest AVAF2 Frequently Asked Questions Guide at ashcroftcapital.com slash leftfield. That's ashcroftcapital.com slash leftfield. I really enjoyed that conversation with Alec. It's one of these things, you know, as I said many, many times to the podcast, we generally like to do the boring real estate stuff. That's where I get cash flow to live my life and all of that. But the fun part, or the really fun part for me is the speculation when I'm investing in these startups that may go to the moon or may, may go nowhere. So I was really excited about this. I know it's a little bit out of the norm for our podcast, but it was nice to have Alec come on from our crowd. I'm an investor there. I'm in a, on a couple other platforms too. Our crowd, I really like the way they vet the deal. So that that's nice. And as he said, they invest in their own deals. He's in 40 deals on his own, but then our crowd also invests in all these deals and they do the vetting. And, you know, of course, they're going to be better at that than I am. So it gives you a little bit more confidence when you're looking at these startups because I don't know anything about the technology. I just look at it and say, hmm, that sounds interesting. Some experts have vetted it, so maybe I'll give it a shot. And, you know, that's where I'm doing a small percentage of my portfolio, 5 to 10% in some of this speculative stuff. I found it also really kind of comforting, I guess. He explained the difference between venture capital, startup, series A, and all the others which I hear those terms all the time, and I have no idea what they are. The only one I really understood was Unicorn, because that's the one that doesn't exist, and if you find it, there you go. But it was nice to get a little bit of level setting on what all of those terms meant. And also interesting, and I've heard this before, that a lot of these startups, they aren't going public anymore. They're just selling to somebody else. Google, or one of those five companies he mentioned, ends up buying a lot of these. So you're not maybe getting the huge multiples that you were in the past with these companies going public, but you're still getting 5x, 10x returns on some of these, hopefully. And that's one of the most impactful things that Alex said was you can only lose one time your money. These aren't on margin. You're not using leverage. So on these deals, you can lose all of your money and you probably will on quite a few of these, but it only takes one 10x deal to make up for nine that go to zero. And of course, that's not the ratio you want. I don't know what the ratio you'll actually get is, but if a couple of yours go 5, 10, 20x, it's going to make up for those losses. And as far as the fund, I really like the fund idea because as he said, that's diversification immediately, not only by industry probably, but also by stage, whether they're Series A, Series F, or a venture or startup. So I really like that. Although in my case, I have so much fun looking through and trying to pick the exact right company and companies that I'm interested in that I haven't invested in the fund. Now, this is a case of the smartest thing to do is probably put your money in that fund because I think you'll probably get pretty good returns. But the fun thing to do is search through and find these companies that are interesting to you. And that's the companies I end up investing in. So I'm probably not built for the fund because that would put me back in the boring real estate category. And for this stuff, I'm hoping to make a bunch of money, but I'm also looking to have a little bit of fun and invest in things that are interesting to me. So I feel like I get both with that. Again, I don't always make the best financial decisions, but on this part, it feels like having a little fun is okay. And so that's what I'm doing. So I hope you enjoyed it. We'll have him on again in the future just to kind of catch up. But for today, that's it for us. We'll see you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. 
This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting. 